So the Mexican Revolution, it was planned in the circus. It was actually an Atayde circus. So if acting for theater gets this, imagine working on a circus, on a street circus that is owned by a family. To see each other as family in the circus, I think it's something that it's key and it, it would always stay as key to be able to help each other. Welcome to the Theatre Art Live podcast, and hello. We're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Ana Aguilera. And my name is Ana Rob. On this episode, we'll be talking to Charlie Ortega about Circus in Mexico. Charlie is originally from Monterrey, Mexico, and he has worked for Cirque du Soleil and Dragon shows across the world, including Canada, the US, the UAE, and China. Hello, Charlie. Welcome. Hello, hello to you both, and thank you so much for having me here. We're happy to have you on on Zoom to talk to us for our podcast. Well, I'm very excited too, and I'm so proud to see what you guys do. And I always keep reading the the articles, and now that it's now the podcast, so I'm, it's even more exciting, I guess, to everyone in the industry. So, tell us about yourself, seeing you are our feature today. Well, I was born in Mexico, as uh, Anna mentioned. And uh, since I was a kid, uh, my passion was always theater and circus and whatever had a stage and uh, a couple of uh, acts on it. And uh, I decided to go to school for theater. So I, I went to Canada, actually. I was in Sheridan College and I took the uh, technical production for a theater and live events program. And uh, after that, I did a postgraduate in circus arts management in Belgium, which was very excited because it was, I guess it's, it's the only like postgraduate program related to circus. Uh, so it, it was very interesting. And uh, then I joined the uh, Cirque du Soleil actually, and, uh, and eventually Dragon also. And that's been my life for the last almost seven years. So why circus? If you like all the live entertainment and everything that's on a stage, why circus? I've always uh, really admired how the circus is about bringing the, the human abilities to the extreme and find every time what people can do and how our, our bodies can be amazing uh, as a unit, but also as a group. And what do you say, what's the difference between traditional circus and modern circus now? What, would you explain the differences that you perceive them to be from your education? For me, traditional circus, uh, it's always been, well, it, traditional circus started with the animals. It started with the, with the horsemanship. So that's always been the, the main attraction of the traditional circus. And eventually they started to add uh, uh, clowns and jugglers and uh, uh, tight wire walkers, uh, but it's always a circus that is in a tent with a ring, uh, a ringmaster, and uh, of course the, the presence of uh, animals in the act. Modern circus, I see it more as a multi-discipline show where we have uh, various talents, various uh, capabilities, and now we're even integrating technology and uh, other sources of entertainment, uh, but it's more about how 
we evolve as humanity, but speaking more as humans only. Although it still is, they still do the, across the border in, uh, you may have experienced it in China too, they still do uh, a lot of shows with animals. And I do believe the most amazing thing that I've ever seen is a wheel of death act with uh, chimpanzees blindfolded. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen anything like that before. <laughs> I can't. I don't know if it's borderline animal animal cruelty, but you know that's a whole other discussion. You know. Yeah, and and I think the what we can rescue about the animals, even like speaking about the past and the, the present, is how to me the circus was the start of uh, globalization. It was when uh, people started to bring different cultures, different animals to other countries and to other places and show them to people. And I think that's why even back then when the circus was in town, uh, sometimes even the town could even shut down and it was a parade and it was a, a huge thing and people wouldn't go to work. They would all go to see the circus because this was like, if, if today it would be like the internet arrived to town for one day. And everyone wants to see it. I remember when I was a child, they used to come and I lived in a very tiny country town in Australia and they used to set up in this field and we used to go down like to see elephants in our in our town. Like that was like the craziest concept for me to see elephants just walking around this. What used to usually is a cricket pitch is now a, a housing for elephants. And that I think as a kid, it's such a an amazing, amazing experience to have, especially when you don't, you, like you said, now the internet exposes us to all of these things now, but when you're a kid living in a small country town, you don't get a lot of <laughs> access and surprises to that. There's a note here, and I, you're going to probably tell me if it's true. Is it true that Mexico is a country with the most circus companies? Well, we actually, in Mexico, there's around 400 circuses. And uh, they're, they're small because they're still family operated which I think it's also, that's been the challenge that it, it's, it still belongs to a family and a family can only evolve in a specific way, not as like a contemporary circus with multi-disciplines and like lots of people coming from different backgrounds. So there's a lot of circuses, very small, and sometimes they even stay in the same state, but they just keep moving to uh, different spaces to, to wow the, the, the small communities. Is it true that there are a bunch of circos pirata or like piracy among circuses and that they steal the ideas from one another? That's all, I, yeah. And uh, it's always like uh, you would go to the circus to see, you know, the, the family entertainment because it's always about the kids. And I think that that probably has a lot to do because of the TV and what the kids see. And the kids, they want to go see Barney and they want to go see the Disney characters and they want to go see whatever they see on TV. Right now, they don't have animals, but before they had the animals, but the other main attraction was always either the superhero or the animated character that they would present to the kids and they could go and take pictures with them. So as you were saying, right now in Mexico, they don't have animals. So in 2016 animals or 2015 animals were banned from circuses with another whole conversation and topic that we could leave for later. But how did that transform the circus industry in Mexico? I think that actually when that happened that year, I was in Mexico and I was working in another state in Puebla with a good friend that his name is Julio Rebolledo. 
and uh, he was a historian for uh, traditional circus in Latin America. So I, I got to see this process with him and with the other circus community, and I could see how it was a hard transition for them, not because of removing the animals, but because they they have done this for hundreds of years sometimes for some of the families that started this you know, 100 years ago. Uh, so this has been their life, their business, uh, their pets eventually. And uh, to know that you cannot work with them was a whole new chapter, not only because of the animals not being in the space, but because they didn't know what to do with the animals. They tried to give them to zoos, but then some zoos would say, we don't have the budget, you know, to just take 40 elephants from all these circuses and 50 tigers and all this. So someone needs to take care of them and they eat and they need food and they need care and they need uh, someone to be, you know, checking on them all the time. So when, when this process started, I felt it was more like a political campaign from a specific political party who was trying to, you know, get a name on doing something good. But then when the circus community went back to the government and said, what are we going to do with the animals? They didn't thought about that. They didn't know how to help. They were like, okay, now we're telling these people they cannot use the animals. They're coming back telling us that they have hundreds of exotic animals that they cannot carry, but that they don't have a huge space to bring them to. So the sad part of the story was that a lot of these animals, they, they had to, uh, they ended up dying because they, they couldn't go back to the wild and no one could take care of them. So I think it, it was something that came out of good intention, but it was not well processed. They should have made a special, a special zoo for just the retired circus animals to take it. You know, they should have funded at least one thing like that. I mean, that is a, that's kind of a tragic story because you can imagine that'd be quite a lot of, and so you mean when they died, you mean that they were put down? Yeah, they were all had to be put down. When I was doing research for the podcast, I read this article of how there were some camels brought to a zoo and every time people would line up in front of them, they would line up and wait for an applause. And so, <laughs> and people were saying that they felt compelled to clap and to give them that. See, I think it would be an entertaining zoo if they had to put them all in the one zoo. Who knows what you would see? You just go see the elephants and they'd be doing tricks and, you know. It's a hard thing, you know, because humans have, I guess, have uh, trained them in a certain sense in a certain way, right? So there's just no way. There's no way any of them could go back to the wild. So there's got to be a place. It was very sad for them because, uh, you know, living with uh, an elephant, for you it might sound exotic, but for them that was their pet also. So they would love the elephant sometimes also. So it was hard to know that, you know, it's like telling a family, give me all your pets. You cannot have them anymore. And you're going to have to put them down because no one's going to take them. So it was, I think it was a very sad process for them. There were a lot that uh, got sick out of depression as well. So that was sad. But my question was more like geared towards, so you have half of your show that's based on animals and now you don't have animals. How do you feel that time and that entertainment? So what did they do? How did they reinvent themselves? Well, there were a, a lot of protests at the beginning. They were trying to keep the animals. Eventually, they realized that the conversation was not going that way. So they tried to reinvent, but a lot of them, they didn't have the budget to you know, buy technology and buy all these new things to wow people. So 
a lot of circuses they had to close. Some of them, they tried to approach theater communities and a theater director and try to uh, produce something new. There's a very famous um, producer here that his name is Alejandro Go, and he does a lot of musicals. And he was one of the one uh, of the producers who approached the one of the circus families and said, "I'm going to help you, and I'm going to direct a show, and let's let's try to move to a theater and see how it works." And they've been experimenting since then. But even there was a big tub located in the Mexico City, and that big tub was there for around 150 years. And when this thing happened, they had to close. So that was the end of that big tub that had been there for like even before our Mexican revolution happened. An institution was taken away, wow. Yeah. So now if, um, if I think about circus in Mexico, I'll probably think about Circo Taide and all the big families that, yeah, I probably used to hear more when I was a kid and, you know, on the streets and they were advertising. And then Cirque du Soleil, who obviously has a, an active presence in the country, and then mo most recently, the Lagunitas Beer Circus that I thought it was kind of a fun and nice way to approach circus nowadays. But can you tell us about this? You have to tell me about the beer circus. What is that about? Well, I mean, there's a lot of uh, circus families. Well, there's not, I mean, there's not a lot, but there's around 10 main families that started the circus. The circus, actually, they arrived to Mexico. It was a Swedish and French troupe with a guy named uh, Philip uh, Lyleson. So he was the one in uh, 1808 who brought the circus first. And even after him, uh, we had our own uh, Mexican independence. And that was a long process. So there was a, a entertainment didn't happen because the conversation was about becoming free. So until the 60s, 1860s, is when all these families started to create a circus. Uh, so we have the, the Ataide, the Gasca, Suarez, there's a lot of them. And some of them, they, they have become very important, not only in Mexico, but also in all Latin America. For example, the Fuentes Gasca family, they were the, the first family in Latin America to start approaching other small circuses and gather them and create a, a company that was more a corporation of a lot of individual circuses, but they could at, at least speak as a whole and have more impact on whatever the conversation was between the circus and the community or the government. So there's been a lot of uh, families. The Ataide, one of the Ataide brothers, he was the first one in the world to do a quadruple jump on the trapeze. So they became, they became very famous because of that. And there, there's a, each family, they. They have their own like little sieve on a, a small or a big impact that they have brought to the circus. And what about Cirque or Lagunitas? It's uh, the circus. It's still very pleaded on uh, economic uh, classes. Like for us, the the circus, the traditional circus, would be more the middle to lower class. And uh, if you go to them and you ask them about Cirque du Soleil or a huge show, let's say a, a Vegas show, a Dragon show, they, they don't know anything about this. They, for them, the circus, it's, you know, the small circus in the neighborhood. Uh, so Cirque du Soleil and the other shows, they've been a lot for uh, middle, high and high class. And uh, it's interesting to see how they are from two different worlds 
they're the same, where they try to do the same. They try to entertain people, but eventually it became something about social class. So is there anything that you, like you've touched on how it represents different social classes and it different, even parts of the country and disciplines. Is there anything else you want to add or touch on regarding these families and how it's evolved and what modern circus is right now in Mexico? I believe the conversation today for the government and for the circus in Latin America is about seeing it as an art. That's That's been the conversation for the last couple of years. And that's why they struggle because they, they don't have any government funds. They cannot apply to get any source of help from the government because the governments, not only in Mexico, but also in the other countries, they see circus as uh, something that it's fun, as a particular business model, that it's not a cultural uh, or it's, it's not bringing anything to the arts. So that's why they don't have any any income that they can get or any funds. I think that's where the conversation still needs to keep going. They still need to try to see the circus as something that it's it's been here for a while. It's been in the world for thousands of years, even before, you know, Philip Astley started the, the traditional circus, what we know about the traditional circus, that back then was for them the contemporary circus, but now we have a new contemporary circus. But another fun fact, actually, is that when the revolution happened in Mexico, they didn't have a place to gather the, you know, the generals and everyone who was planning the revolution. They didn't know where to go because all the companies were so afraid of uh, gathering them and doing the meetings, the secret meetings uh, in there. And the only people who said yes was the circus. So the Mexican revolution, it was planned in the circus. It was actually an Ataibe circus. And eventually, the Francisco Villa, that it's uh, the Mexican guy who was, you know, with the revolution flag that made the big movement, he, in exchange, eventually helped them to give them access to the railroad so they could travel. But the horses, a lot of the horses that were used in the revolution, they were circus horses. They were the horses from the Ataibe circus. So to me, that's always been something that it's so fascinating that the circus is linked to one of our main historical events in Mexico and that the government still doesn't see it as an important industry that needs to be acknowledged. It's, I mean, essentially it's part of, it's part of your history. It's part of your culture and, and it's still, you know, I don't know any other part in the world where it's still such a family orientated sort of foundational uh, business, you know, so it's quite a fascinating thing that it is still exists in that way shape or form but for you personally do you you I mean you're working on the big shows now working with Cirque and Dragon and going around the world do you have any investment in yourself with your career in in helping preserve circus in Mexico I mean what's your relationship with it and and where do you want to go with your career I have a lot of friends uh, from the traditional circus families so from the Ataide from Gasca and the Campa uh, so right now actually with with the virus happening I've been helping the Fuentes Gasca family that they got stuck in my hometown to try to stream the circus. And uh, I have a small studio that they we have cameras and we have like a TV uh, studio more for the internet. So I've been helping them with uh, whatever equipment I can provide them to at least have a, a business online that they can run. 
I have a lot of relationships also with the Campa brothers that they're more clowns. It's a clown family, uh, but I've been helping them a lot to try to think of content and think how us in, in Cirque and in Vergon, how we produce shows, how we come up with concepts and how we find new ways that we can wow people. Because a lot of the times they're very simple tricks that as long as you do them well with the right lighting and with the right timing, people get amazed. And that doesn't stop anyone from doing it. Even a, a traditional circus, they could do a lot of these tricks. So I try to help them to find new ways or to uh, do a research with them and give them as much support as I can. How much do you see them going to? I know there's some families that tour in the U.S. There were some big families that had um, mostly the Caribbean part, both the islands and then on mainland, all the Central America and the part of South America that is in the Caribbean. So how do you see it going towards or other areas of the continent or is it going abroad or maybe Europe or expanding to Asia or as you said, getting feedback from, from what circuses are doing outside? I don't know, how, how do you see this relationship with circus in Mexico and what's happening around the world? I know that the, the only family that I personally know that is in the U.S. is the Hermanos uh, Vasquez, that they have their own big top that travel in the U.S. The rest, they've been uh, focusing more on Mexico and Latin America. I think that's why even in the circus families, there's a lot of, um, you can see a lot of feathers and a lot of carnival and a lot of these Brazilian and South American culture and rhythms. And that's what they would dance. And they would try to mix this with cabaret. So it's very interesting how they've been spreading, like going up and down as a unit and helping each other. I think the, the next step for them, since right now it's a family business, would be to try to open the family and bring new people to help them to do new acts and perform other shows and other tricks. But a lot of that comes from a circus school. So in, in Mexico right now, we only have one circus uh, school that is certified. And in Latin America, there's just a few countries like uh, there's Peru and Brazil and Cuba and uh, Argentina that they have, they have circus uh, schools, but they, they still don't have a big budget that they can have. The, like it's not the Russian, like the Soviet circus school that we know they can do a lot of things or the Chinese circus school. They're very small schools that they don't have this capacity to, you know, explore the, the people that we have and whoever wants to know. And the other challenge is also the, the society. We need to also acknowledge that some kids, uh, they want to do gymnastics and other ones, they want to learn acrobatics because they want to be in the circus. So they, there's two sides on everything, uh, but there's a lot of judgment still on the society on seeing people going to a circus, not as a spectator, but going to the circus to work as someone who would be like a, a low class and someone without a future. A gypsy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we are gypsies. <laughs> we go from place to place and we perform our magic. Yeah. And this is like, a. I think the big challenge also is that if this is the right now of the circus, but I also see it on the other side, even with theater, the theater is something that it's more, known worldwide as an art form, as culture, as, uh, you know, dance acting, as one of the main arts. And even theater is very hard in Mexico to, you know, to work on or to produce or to uh, even to become an actor. You know, you still get the judgment from the society. 
So if acting for theater gets this, imagine working on a circus and a street circus that is owned by a family. Yeah, and I think also it's still in modern times getting a definition or a new definition, you know. See, it's only recently that animals have been pulled out of the circus as an official aspect, even though that's only certain parts of the world because they still do it in China. But And then there's the the huge corporate models of Dragon and Cirque that, you know, are funded from a very different place than this family-built circus. So it's it's really time will tell how that evolves, you know. Will the family circus survive and what will it evolve into and and also post pandemic I guess how will Cirque and Dragon shows be reignited you know I think for some situations over in Asia businessmen have invested a lot of money in in shows and they haven't necessarily been successful and um you've got to ask yourself why right so it's still finding its feet what is this genre what is what is uh where is it going you know and I think I mean, we're all going to see it. I don't think we can probably look into the looking glass of the future and figure that out now. It's certainly going to be interesting. And I do think one of the amazing things is, the like in theatre as well, especially in Mexico, you've got these families. And so that sense of family, even if somebody comes from that part of the world or any part of the world, circus people have a sense of family when they're working together. Do you agree with that? And, and how do you think that that plays into the success of a show if they do or do not feel like a family? I just think that even like even for me working in Cirque or in Dragon, I would feel that even we're not a family, we still say, we always say that we're a circus family, we're a touring family, because we really... It needs a, a community, a family-oriented business model to be able to survive. I, I really feel that because uh, if I'm touring and if something happens to me and I go to the hospital, my you know my blood family is not going to be the first one to arrive. It's going to be my touring family that's going to go there and see what happened. So to see each other as family in the circus, I think it's something that it's key and it's, it would always stay as key to be able to help each other. And I think that's that's going to be what's going to happen with the circus families, hopefully in, in Mexico and in Latin America. They're going to see that a family is not only a bloodline, but it's whoever can join your community and whoever can join and become a family member. I think that's the, the, the next step also for them, that just because your last name is not a Taide or a Gasca or, you know, all these famous last names, it doesn't mean that you cannot support the family and join the family and eventually produce even a, a bigger show that everyone's going to like. I think this is a perfect place to stop the conversation for now. Hopefully we'll have Charlie for another conversation on traditional circus and get to know more about traditional techniques and disciplines and tricks and how we got to where we are right now. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope that we can meet again and we can chat about uh, circus again. I always like to speak about Mexico and speak about the other Latin American co uh, countries and how circus has been evolving in the last years. Yes, I definitely want to know more. Thanks for your time, Charlie. Please write a review on our podcast whenever you listen to our podcast and let your friends know about us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Life by visiting our website at www.theatreartlife.com. And you can follow us on social media and leave your questions or comments on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Twitter, or YouTube. We really want to thank David Zaya for composing the music for our podcast and Michelle Sharotta, who is our sound engineer. 
We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre Art Life podcast, where we put the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world. 